Welcome to Prophecy Countdown with author and pastor Kenneth Baer. Join us every week for the latest updates on what the Bible has to say about the events, the characters, and prophetic signs of the return of Jesus Christ and His coming kingdom. Make sure you not only subscribe, but like your favorite episodes and share it with your friends. Now, on with the broadcast. Welcome to our service here at the Windsor in Celebration. Uh, we've been going through the Gospel of... Matthew, Matthew, we've been going through the gospel book by book, uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Now, what's interesting is that today uh, our, our ministry is going, our, our, our teaching is going to be on a better plan. A better plan, that's what it's called. Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 26, and I've titled this A Better Plan. Don't you know that from time to time, our, our plan versus God's plans, God's plans win, right? I mean, God has a better plan. There's so many times that, that we figure out what we want to do, and we're, we're trying to think exactly what, uh, what's good for us or what's good for our family, what we should buy, where we should move. But God has a, a better plan. We were talking about this, David, remember this in Bible study, this last, last week, that sometimes we, 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 we're, we're, we're hesitant to move because we're trying to figure out what God wants for us. Now, my advice is start moving. It's always easier to steer a car that's already moving, right? So, so move out. Move out in faith. But God has a, a better plan. We're going to see that today because we're going to be talking about uh, two instances of healing. A, a woman that has an issue of blood for 12 years and a young girl, also 12 years old, uh, that is in the process of dying. She may have already died, we're not too sure, but the man comes to Jesus because he believes that Jesus can heal his daughter. Two wonderful stories of, of faith. And again, the topic of my message is a, a better plan. We're going to start off in verse 18. Matthew writes, While he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but I've but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him, as did his disciples. And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, if only I may touch his garment, I will be made well. But Jesus turned around and when he saw her, he said, be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. When Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing, he said to them, make room for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when the crowd was put outside, he went in and took her by the hand and the girl arose. And the report of this went out into all of the land. You know, if we look back in your, in your Bible, look back just a few verses uh, prior, uh, there's a verse 8, and it says this. It says, Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, who had given so much power to men. The context there was Jesus had just raised up the paralytic. There was a man that was laying there in the street, and he reached out, and Jesus turned to him and said, Your sins are forgiven. And of course, the Pharisees and the religious leaders that were with Jesus are following along and listening for Jesus to say something like that. They ridiculed Jesus. They said, this man blasphemes for no one can forgive sins except God alone. And they were exactly correct. That's exactly who was forgiving the man's sins. And Jesus says, what's easier to say? 
Is it easy to say your sins are forgiven or rise, get up and walk? And then he turns to the man and he says, get up and take your mat and go back home. And the man gets up and this is, the people are, are marveling at this. And we, you know, we saw this, uh, this before, even if you go back to uh, before the Beatitudes, back in chapter 4, the people were crushing in and coming to Jesus because he was, he was healing. You know, Jesus is becoming very well known. I mean, this is before talk radio, this is before NBC, CBS, uh, news talk, I mean, uh, internet, radio, we didn't have any of that. You know, Paul Harvey wasn't telling the rest of the story. I mean, people, people heard about Jesus, and the reason they heard about Jesus is because he was so different than anybody else. You have to understand the Jewish people were used to prophets. Uh, they had Elijah, they had I Isaiah, they had Ezekiel, they had Moses, they had a number of prophets. They had seen God part the Red Sea. They had seen all these different things. But just prior to Jesus being on the scene is what's known as the silent years, 400 years of silence. If you look in your Old Testament, the last book in the Old Testament is Malachi, or one of my professors liked to use to say Malachi. I think he was Italian. So, so, but it was Malachi, Malachi. And it was written about 400 B.C. Now, it prophesied of Jesus coming, talked about Naz, it talked about Bethlehem, but it was 400 years. And during those 400 years prior to John the Baptist coming on the scene, who was the forerunner of Jesus Christ, there was no prophet in the land. There was no one saying, thus saith the Lord. There was no one that was healing. There was no one that they could go to. They had the rabbis, they had the Pharisees, they had the Sadducees, but that wasn't satisfying. But Jesus comes on the scene, and the people say, this must be the Messiah. No one can do the things that he's doing unless God is, God is with them. Many had hoped that he would be the Messiah. Now, one of the, some of the people that were not hoping that he was the Messiah were the Pharisees. The Bible doesn't have a lot to say good about the Pharisees. You know, other than Nicodemus, who came to Jesus at night, Jesus is the one that told them, you must be born again. Most of the Pharisees, we don't have very complimentary things to say about them. They were self-righteous. They were the ones that Jesus spoke of when he said, you've heard it said, but I tell you. When he said, you've heard it said, he was pointing to the Pharisees. These are the ones that were giving the law. But Jesus had a, a better plan. That's our sermon for today. A better plan, a better idea. Well, one of the Pharisees, was a guy named Jairus. Now, it doesn't say in our account today, but we have what's called the Synoptic Gospels. We have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which give the same account often of the same event, the same healing, the same instance, but they're looking at it from a different viewpoint. In fact, that's what synoptic means. Synoptic means a, a viewpoint, a point of view. You know, often when we, when we see a, a crime, when, there's a, when there's something happens, and the police come and they look for eyewitnesses and they gather two or three eyewitnesses and they try to separate them and they say, tell us what you saw. And they write it down. Those viewpoints often are from a different perspective. One person will have a certain account and he'll have certain details that the other person doesn't have. And that's good because when they come from different viewpoints, they should have different details that one person sees that another person doesn't. If you talk to three people that they're eyewitnesses and they all give exactly the same account, the judge, the jury, the attorneys know that that was rehearsed. They were rehearsed on what they actually saw. 
When we look at the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see different viewpoints, and that's a, a good thing. It doesn't mean that the Bible is an error. It means that it's coming from different viewpoints, which actually brings credibility to it. And if we read the Synoptic Gospels, if we read Mark and Luke, we find out that the leader that's talked about in Matthew was actually a synagogue leader, probably a rabbi, probably a Pharisee, and his name was Jairus, or Jairus, J-A-I-R-U-S, Jairus. And he was, the, he was a Pharisee. And what does he do? Verse 8 says that he came and he worshipped Jesus, which means that he bowed down. He bowed down before Jesus. He was prostrating himself because he knew Jesus was the only man that was available that could possibly help his daughter. And he does this in public. He has Jesus for help from Jairus, a, a Pharisee. This is a huge act of humility. I mean, he's doing this in front of his town people. The, he's probably doing this in front of other Pharisees as well. He's going to be ostracized, but he doesn't care because his daughter is dying. And Jesus is the only one that he can go to. So as a result, he goes to Jesus and he bows down and he says, please lay your hand on my daughter because if you lay your hand on my daughter, she'll be made well. So let me reference this from the Gospel of Mark. Like I said, we've got Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All are giving the same account, but from a different viewpoint. In the Gospel of Mark, it says this. It says, And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue named Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed and she may live. Now, one of the things I want to point out is in this gospel account, in, in Mark's gospel account, it says that she's lying at the point of death. In your Bible today, in the reading today, in Matthew, it says that she has just died. Well, that's not a real problem. And the reason it's not a problem is because many of you know what it's like to be with somebody as they're dying. I've, I've been there. And you hear them take a breath. And then you wait, and you wait, and you wait for the next breath. And then there's another breath. They haven't died yet. They just took a breath, and you wait, and you wait for the next breath. You see, that's the process. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, in the Greek, that word dead is a verb. Means there's something happening. They're, they're in the process of dying. So even when you look closely at the synoptic gospels, you see they're coming from a different point of view, but they're saying the same thing. God is the author of the New Testament. God's not going to give us any bad information. Notice that Matthew says, my daughter has just died, but in Luke and in Mark, it says that she is dying, and we have no problem with that because the word there in Matthew is a verb. She is at the process of death, which means even more reason for Jairus to be in front of Jesus. But he's interrupted. Jesus tells him, I will go with you. He loves his daughter, and Jesus just told him that he's going to go with him. He's going to lay his hand on his daughter. He'll go with him. Jairus knows exactly what that means. His daughter's going to live, but he's interrupted. <laughs> he's interrupted. Um, let's continue. Let's see what the interruption is all about. It says, and suddenly, I love it, it says suddenly, okay? It means that something was happening, and all of a sudden something's changed, right? There's a plan there's a plan in motion. Jairus has a plan. 
He knows exactly what he needs to do, and all of a sudden the plan is going to change, and let's see what, what happens. And suddenly it says, a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. That's Jesus. For she said to herself, if only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, be of good cheer, daughter, your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. Now, what's interesting is both Mark and Luke, the other synoptic gospels, gives a much fuller account of this miracle. Uh, people are pressing in. The woman touches his, the hem of his garment. Jesus turns around and says, who touched me? Who touched me? You know, you have this, this and Peter goes, what, what do you mean who touched you? There's people all around you. How can we possibly? He says, no, no, virtue went out of me. It's, a, it's an interesting story. It really is. But actually, I like the account of Matthew better. Because Jesus turns to the woman and says, your faith has made you well. See, also, you can read Luke and, you can read Luke and Mark and somehow feel this kind of this magical hem of the garment, right? You know, it's like, it's like, the, it's like uh, Indiana Jones looking for the, the, the secret chalice or something like that gives, it, that gives eternal life. No, no, it's not about the hem of the garment. It's not about a chalice. It's not about the temple. It's not about any of that. It's about the faith of the woman. And the faith isn't so much in touching the hem of the garment. It's that it's Jesus' garment. She has faith in Jesus to be able to do something for her that nobody else has been able to do for 12 years. You have to understand for 12 years she has had a flow of blood, which means her menstrual period is continually, she's just continually bleeding. And as a result, she is, ritual, uh, she is uh, impure. She can't go into the temple. Anybody that touches her actually is impure as well. This woman is ostracized from the rest of the people of Israel because of this medical condition she has. But she believes that Jesus is the one that's able to do this. For some reason, she has this point of contact, the hem of his garment. Not, who told her that? I mean, who told the woman that not only is Jesus a healer, that he's done this, that he raised the paralytic, he said, your sins are forgiven, get up and walk, and he's been able to do this, but that if she just touched the hem of his garment. But you see, it was just a point of contact for her. She had faith in Jesus, and she knew that it was almost impossible to get his attention. There were people that were crowding around him. This synagogue leader who was talking to him, and Jesus was following him, but he's the synagogue leader. She's just a woman with a flow of blood. She can't even get close to him. If people knew who she was, they would be keeping her away. So she has this point of contact. She says, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, that's all I need. I just need that, that touch. And I know that Jesus is able to do that. You know, this is faith. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews that it's impossible to please God without faith. Did you know that? It's impossible to please God without faith. You have to have faith, faith that he is, and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's what the Bible says. Now, she had faith to be healed, and she ultimately was healed, right? We have faith sometimes for healing, and we see healing. Now, that does not mean the opposite. That doesn't mean that if you aren't healed, that you lack faith. Not, not at all. Not at all. You see, God is the one that heals. God is the one that plans. We can pray, but God is the one that fulfills those, those plans according to his desires. God's plans are higher than our plans. His ways are higher than our ways. So, so it's not a, a sacred prayer or holy water. It isn't the actual faith that we have. It's all about God. 
and God's plan for our life. But we turn our life over to God because God is the one that ultimately has the plan. Let's continue. So Jesus has now been interrupted, but now he's back on track, right? It says, And Jesus came into the ruler's house, this Jairus, and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing, and he said to them, Make room, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when the crowd was put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose, and the report of this went out into all the land. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all make reference to these mourners, the flute players and the people that were wailing, wailing. You have to understand that in the Jewish culture at the time, it's not much different today, but in the Jewish culture at the time, um, you had to have mourners. That was, the, that was a show of respect for uh, the dead. So you had to have somebody, in fact, you had to have mourners so much that they were paid. These were paid mourners. They had musicians, professional musicians that were paid to play at these types of situations, and you would pay them. So much so that the poor, there was extra biblical evidence, but there was some rabbinical writings that we have from ancient times that says even the poor need to afford one flute player and two mourners. Okay, so the idea is that was expected. Now it all depends, and you might understand this based on your culture. It, there are certain cultures that people are very emotional. If somebody is, is married, they're, they're crying. If somebody dies, they are wailing, right? I mean, this just is just what it is. I've been to the hospital to visit with people that are in the hospital, and I've come across some cultures where the family's gathered around and they're, they're wailing. And the person's not dead, they're just in the hospital, but they're showing their affection, they're showing their love and their support for the person by, by wailing. Now, when I grew up, my grandparents on my father's side, my grandfather Bear and my grandmother Bear were very German. My grandfather's name was Karl, okay? If he had a black mustache, he would have looked like Hitler. I mean, I mean, he was very, very German. And, and my grandfather always wore a tie, always was very, very proper, always stood very erect and sat very erect. I mean, there was no curvature to his spine. He was just very, very erect. And this is part of the German culture. And there was a time in my family when we lost one of my cousins. And I remember my aunt and my mother and my father and people were all very emotional. I was a very young child. It was very strange for me to see this. I, didn't, I had never experienced anything like that before. My grandfather and my grandmother stood erect. And it wasn't because they didn't care, it was because of the culture. The culture at the time was you needed to wail, you needed to mourn, you needed to hire mourners if necessary in order to show that you cared. And these people were mourning in front of this, this, this house of Jairus because the daughter, they said, had died. But, but Jesus, Jesus had a better plan. Uh, Jesus says, no, no, she's just sleeping, right? Now Jesus knows exactly what state of being she is, right? He knows exactly whether she had taken her last breath or not. In fact, it appears that she had um, because they're all mourning. Jairus had left to go find Jesus and by this time they've already brought in the mourners so most likely she's laying in dead, uh, in dead, de dead. Uh, but Jesus had a better plan and part of his plan was to put the people that didn't have faith out. Let me read it to you from uh, the Gospel of Luke. While he was still speaking, this is Jesus, right? Someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house saying to him, your daughter is dead. 
Do not trouble the teacher. But when Jesus heard it, he answered him saying, Do not be afraid. Only believe and she will be made well. Notice that? He's taking the people that don't believe and telling them to be quiet. When he came into the house, he permitted no one to go with him except Peter, James, and John. We've seen this before, right? That Peter, James, and John, for some reason, are in this inner circle. They're allowed to experience things that the other disciples do not. And the father and the mother of the girl, people that believe. Now all wept and mourned for her, but he said, Do not weep. She is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him, knowing that she was dead. But he put them all outside, took her by the hand, and, said, and called, saying, Little girl, arise. Then her spirit returned, and she arose immediately. He commanded that she be given something to eat. I love that. And her parents were astonished, but he charged them to not tell anyone what had happened. This is Luke's account in the Synoptic Gospel. Isn't this interesting how you get interesting information that one Gospel account doesn't have? Now, why was, why was Luke able to tell this story? Well, because Luke was interviewing Peter. Peter, James, and John were his sources of first-hand information. Matthew was the tax collector, wrote the Gospel of Matthew, but he was on the outside looking in, right? He could report what people had told him, but he was reporting the facts, like Joe Friday, just the facts, right? He's just giving the facts. It's a shorter account, truthful account, but it's a shorter account. Peter, James, and John, however, had seen what happened inside. And they were able to tell Luke, and Luke recorded it in his, his gospel. Um, there's, there's some interesting things also. This, uh, in the gospel of Mark, the account of this, this little girl, this 12-year-old daughter being raised from the dead, it's like I said, it's, it's also very similar to Luke. However, in the gospel of Mark, and I'm telling you this because, like I said, when we take a look at these gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see these small differences. And those differences are important. And they're important because they also tell us things about the gospel account. We know that the scriptures are inspired by God. It isn't so much the gospel account of Luke, it's the gospel account that God is giving us. So we read these different gospel accounts. For example, in the gospel of Mark, same account says this, and Jesus took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kumi which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. Isn't that interesting that Mark uses the Aramaic words of Jesus? He does this a couple times. For example, at the end of the Gospels, in, in Mark chapter 15, Jesus is on the cross. And Mark records, Matthew, Mark, Matthew, John, and Luke don't record it, but Mark records Jesus crying out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani which is Aramaic for, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's so interesting that he uses it in the Aramaic. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us that the New Testament was written in Greek. It wasn't written in Aramaic. It wasn't written in Hebrew. It was written in Greek. And why was it written in Greek? Because Greek was the common language of the people at the time. You know, my wife and I just came back from our cruise. I didn't show you any slides, but I could. We've got lots of pictures, right? And we were in Norway, we were in Iceland, we were, uh, we were in Belgium, we were in Amsterdam, all different languages. Everybody spoke English. Just as English is the, the common language today, Greek was the common language then. We have over 6,800 fragments, early fragments and complete editions of the gospel accounts and the epistles in Greek. 
going back to the second and third century, 6,800 of them. We have very few in Aramaic. Why? Because it was originally written in Greek. And we know this why, because we can read gospel account in Mark and find out that Mark is saying the words of Jesus in Aramaic, and he tells us that he's translating it into the Greek. That's why we teach the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, different viewpoints of the same events, the same events. So Jesus arrives at Jairus' house, and Jesus tells the paid mourners and the people who are crying that the little girl's death, that they did not need to cry because she was only sleeping. You see, God had a better plan. God had a better plan. I mean, he could have easily, Jairus could have prayed and God could have easily just healed his daughter. His daughter might not have had to be sick at all. You know, she could have just been a healthy girl and played soccer the next day. I mean, that could have happened. But God had a better plan. The better plan was to be able to demonstrate the faith of Jairus, who was a Pharisee, who came to Jesus for his little girl that was 12 years old that was dying. And there was nobody that was going to be able to save this little girl except for Jesus. That was the plan that God had, to be able to demonstrate who Jesus was. The Bible says that God's ways are higher than our ways. His plans are, are better. Uh, these people, the people that Jesus put out, they did not believe. They didn't believe, so Jesus put them out. He only kept the father and the mother and the three, the three apostles. That's it. He kept the people who had faith with him. When people do not have faith, even a miracle will not necessarily convince them. These Pharisees had seen Jesus perform miracles, but they didn't have faith, so as a result, they still didn't believe. You see, faith is not, <laughs> faith is not seeing something and then believing. Faith is seeing things that you believe in even if you don't see them. Faith is seeing without believing. That's what this man had. That's what his wife had. That's what the apostles had. They knew Jesus was, was able to do this. You know, we often do the same. We really do. If, if you have somebody that you want to pray for you, who are you going to call, right? You're going to call somebody that has faith. You're going to have somebody that's reading the Bible with you, that's in Bible study with you, that goes to church with you. That's why people call their pastor, because they know that people that have faith will agree with them to believe in the one, not the hem of the garment, right? Not the magic napkin, but they're going to believe in the one that can actually make the difference. So you, you tend to go to people that have faith that can believe. I don't want to ask somebody that doesn't believe to pray. What good are their prayers going to be? They're, they're going to be arguing with it. Well, you know, it doesn't happen. You know, everybody has to die sometime. No, no, I don't want to hear that. I want to hear that you have faith, that we're going to believe that God can heal me, that God can do things that other people can't do. And I want to believe that because God has a, a better plan. And here's the thing. If I'm healed, God gets the glory, right? If I'm not healed, God still gets the glory, because he was the only one that we can pray to that has the ability to be able to do something that is miraculous. And here's the thing. Ultimately, there's going to be a time when I'm not going to be healed, possibly, unless Jesus comes from the, in the sky, right? I mean, I'm praying for the rapture every day, right? Jesus, take me and now. Let's go. But if that doesn't happen and I end up dying, God still gets the glory. Because the moment of my death, I'm transported to the throne room of God. Bible says that absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. God gets all of the glory. 
And we believe that because we have faith. We haven't seen it, but we have faith. You know, Jesus turned to Thomas, and he said, Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen, yet believe. Who's Jesus talking about? He's talking about us. We haven't seen, but yet we still believe. It only took a few words for Jesus to raise this girl from the dead. This shouldn't surprise us. Because, Jesus, the, because God, in fact, it was Jesus who was the creator, was able to speak words and the whole universe leapt into existence, right? That's what the book of Genesis says. I told this story in my Bible study this last week, but I'll tell you because I got a few laughs. So I, I like the laughs, so I'll tell the story again. So I was, I was in England. I was in England. And when I was in England, I was with Ford Motor Company and most of the people that I associated with with Ford, but they knew that I was from the United States. I was also a believer. Uh, it got out. I don't know how, but it got out somehow that I believed in Jesus and I read the Bible. So I had this gal come over to me and she says, you're not one of those people that believe like God created everything that we see, the entire universe in seven days. You don't believe that, do you? And I said, of course not. I don't believe that. Not at all. The Bible says he did it in six. <laughs> so, and she looked at me, and then she gets it, right? Oh, man, he's one of those, you know? But, but this is the story of faith. Our story today is a story of faith. A sick woman that's sick for, I, I think it's kind of interesting, isn't it, that she was, had the, uh, the flow of blood for 12 years, and we find out that the child was 12 years old as well. It's kind of interesting, isn't it, that the 12 and 12 is there? I, I'm not sure exactly what that means, but I find it interesting. We have, we have a sick woman, a woman with an issue of blood, that's been that like for 12 years. The doctors were not able to help her. And she comes to Jesus. And she has the faith that even if she just touches the hem of his garment, that she'll be healed. And then Jairus, who's a Pharisee, and all of his Pharisee friends are saying, ah, don't do anything with this Jesus. We don't like this guy. You know, in fact, there, there's plans that we're going to put him to death. You know, they're, 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 they've got this all figured out that Jesus is not the guy. But Jairus knows that the only hope for his daughter is this Jesus of Nazareth, and he goes to Jesus and he worships him. He bows down and he says, if you can just put your hand on my daughter, she will live. Tremendous faith. Jesus, just lay your hand on my daughter and she will be healed. This is a, this is a story of faith. I, I pray that you all have that kind of faith. It isn't so much faith to be healed, but it's also faith to be saved, Right? I mean, the Bible says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith is actually a gift from God. And it's the faith that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and that God rose him from the dead. That's what Romans 10.9 says, that saves us, that changes us from death to life. Even though we haven't seen him, we have the faith to believe that Jesus is who he said he was, that the gospel accounts of his death, his life, and his resurrection are true. That's the faith to believe. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, Colossians, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, Matthew 7, 1, James 1, 17, all says it's by faith. The Bible says it's by faith that we're saved, not by any works that we do. It isn't about going to church or reading your Bible or doing those things. Those are things are good things to do. But it's by faith that we're saved. Nothing that we do, but what God has, has already done. We are the people of the New Testament, the New Covenant. Our, our, we're not here because of laws and regulations, but we're based on the grace and the mercy of God who 
took care of the flow of blood in the woman who raised Jairus' daughter and can save you. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank Nearly every day, it's common to see, read, or hear something about the end of the world, the apocalypse, or end times. Author and pastor Kenneth Baer's The Apocalypse and Coming Kingdom zooms in and breaks down biblical prophecy as it relates to Jesus' imminent return and the coming seven-year period, including the Great Tribulation. Available in both paperback and Kindle versions. Get your copy on Amazon or at Barnes & Noble and select Christian bookstores. The title again is The Apocalypse and Coming Kingdom. You can also find it listed by author Kenneth Baer. Get your copy today.